Good morning. The text that we will be in this morning is Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 24 to verse 29. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God has chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Thank you, Chad. Good morning. Hope you guys are all doing well today. Um, my name is Matt. I'm one of our pastors here, and I'm excited to get through this, get into this passage. There's a lot, uh, a lot of ground to cover, so I want to just kind of jump right in. Uh, here in chapter one, uh, Paul has been talking about God's work in the Colossians. He's talked about how God has come to them and and saved them and transformed them. He talked about how God has worked in Christ Jesus. He saw how Jesus is the center of all of history. He is supreme over all things. Uh, The one person that he said very little about is himself. And so uh, this week and next week, the two passages we're going to look at are going to give us a little bit more about Paul and his self-understanding of his own ministry. And so in the passage that Chad just read for us there, we see Paul describe his ministry as a stewardship from God, a stewardship. Uh, it's a, a word we don't use a whole lot in our day. In the Bible, it basically just means someone who, a steward is someone who's entrusted with the goods or responsibilities of someone else. The idea being that you're given something to do and you have someone to answer to. Uh, the, the thing which you are doing doesn't ultimately belong to you, you're but a mere steward. And so Paul thinks of his ministry as a stewardship from God. And I want us to, to think about uh, the ways in which he describes that stewardship. But as we're doing so, we have to apply this on a few different levels. You can kind of think of it as three different planes. So the, the first and most obvious and most central application is to Paul himself. Uh, these verses describe Paul, the first century apostle, and his ministry to the Roman world and particularly the Colossians. Uh, but In describing things that way, he also sets out a bit of a blueprint for any minister in any place at any time. So anyone who considers themselves a minister, who is maybe in the process of training toward vocational ministry, or you sense a certain kind of calling of God into your life to be a minister of the gospel in some sense, there's a blueprint here for what your ministry ought to look like. So that's kind of the second plane. But then there's a, a third level, which is relevant to all of us, Because as Paul unpacks this, he begins to describe not just things in terms of his ministry, but in terms of our ministry, which seems to encompass the whole church. In other words, what Paul sets forth here is both a model for ministers and a model for anyone who would take serious the call of Christ on their lives. It seems that all of us have been entrusted with a stewardship from God in some sense. Uh, Peter uses this language in 1 Peter 4 when he says that we are to be stewards, we are to be good stewards 
of God's varied grace. Right? So there's this idea that God's grace, His gifting, His calling is diverse. So some of, some of us are going to be called into one kind of ministry, some into another. But all of us have been given some responsibility over something or someone, and we've been given it by God, and we'll answer to God for how we handle that. So let's hold those ideas in mind as we're looking at how Paul describes his own stewardship here. There's a sense to which this is Paul talking about Paul. There's a sense to which he's providing a blueprint for all ministers in all times. And there's a sense to which he's setting forth a vision for the Christian life, really for any and all of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus. So how does he describe this stewardship? Well, I want to point out just five characteristics, kind of walking through the text here, five different aspects of this stewardship that Paul points to. And the first is uh, the recipients there in verse 24, as Paul talks about uh, why in part he does the things that he does. So beginning in verse 24 there, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. It's a bit of an odd phrase. We'll come back to that. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, here's an even odder phrase, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, we'll come back to that, for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So there's this language that Paul uses that he's going through these things for the sake of others. He goes on in verse 25 to talk about that stewardship from God. He says, given to me for you. So these things are happening to me for the sake of other people. And it's a good reminder that as a minister, you often experience things as a proxy for other people. Some of you in this room today are in a particular season of your life where you're training for future vocational ministry. You're sort of in that second category I mentioned a second ago, and that you feel like God has called you into a particular kind of ministry that may be even a vocational kind of ministry. And in this season, you are quite literally a student preparing for future ministry. And it's a good reminder here that the things you are going through now, even as a student, even those late nights in the library, even those long papers, even those long classes, they're given to you for the sake of others, right? So there may be a moment where you're sitting in a class or you're going through an assignment or you're reading a book and you think, I don't really need this. I already know it. But the scary thing is that's actually irrelevant because if it's given to you for others, it may be absolutely true that you don't need this. It may be absolutely true that you already know it. But it may be equally as true that God has given it to you so that someday you can share it with others. So there's this other-centered mentality to Paul, what Paul is talking about here that would help us all to see that our ministry, whatever it may be, is not ultimately about us. It's, it's about focusing on those whom we serve, and it's about understanding it as a stewardship from God. This is given to us by God to us for others. As we see, this shapes how Paul thought about his time, how he thought about his, his own work, his own energy, and even, uh, and most significantly here in this text, his, his suffering. So we move from, from the recipients to the second aspect there, and we'll call that the cost, as Paul talks about his suffering. It's uh, probably the most uh, clear piece of um, application here as we think about these verses. 
He understood his suffering in relation to the sufferings of Christ and what it would accomplish for the sake of others. But he describes it in kind of a unique way. So we have to spend a little time figuring out what he means there. He says, I rejoiced in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, says, I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What in the world is he talking about? Uh, Did Paul not know the hymn that we're going to sing in a few minutes, Jesus paid it all, right? Did he not know the hymn we sang a moment ago that nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling, right? There's nothing lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What in the world is he talking about? Well, there's a lot to be said here, but I think before we try to unpack what it actually means, one thing to be really clear is we have to understand what it most definitely does not mean. And I think what he certainly is not meaning is that the cross of Christ is in any way insufficient for salvation. I think Paul actually believed Jesus paid it all. Uh, it, the word here used for afflictions is never used in the New Testament to refer to Paul, uh, Christ's suffering on the cross. So it's, it's more of a general term. It's never used specifically for the cross. But even if you look in the book of Colossians, Paul says things that makes it clear to us that he understood that Jesus paid it all. You look at like verse 12 and 13 in chapter 1 here, where he talks about how the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And then in verse 13, he tells us how. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's this sense of finality there. We have this now. We're not hoping for more in the future. It is ours in Christ Jesus. Or you could turn the page over to verse 13 in chapter 2 that we'll get to in a few weeks. And Paul talks about how we were dead in our sins, but God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Right? He, he has forgiven us all our trespasses by virtue of what Christ has done on the cross. Jesus paid it all. We see this throughout the New Testament. You think about Hebrews 9 and 10, where the author speaks in the language of how Jesus set forth a sacrifice once for all that sin may be put away forever. So there's this sense to which when Jesus said those words on the cross, it is finished. There's, there's a truth and a reality to those words. His work really was done. It really was complete. And it really truly is sufficient for our salvation. That's why the book of Hebrews tells us when he was done, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's how secure our salvation is. So whatever Paul means here, I don't think there's any place for anything like purgatory or any sense of future purification or addition to the sufferings of Christ. Paul's not saying that Jesus has brought us most of the way and we need to now fill up what is lacking in what Jesus has done. Because even in this letter and all throughout the New Testament, the scriptures are clear that nothing is lacking. Jesus paid it all. Okay? Okay, so what does he mean? (laughs) That's what he doesn't mean. Uh, But he still said it, and so we've got to sort it out. So he says, I'm trying to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, there are a bunch of different ideas here. 
uh, among um, Protestants, among evangelicals, among people who take the Bible very seriously. There are a bunch of different explanations as to how to make sense of this. Uh, here are the two that make the most sense to me. I'm, I'm quite comfortable with either one. Uh, one is what some folks call the messianic woes or messianic afflictions. The idea here is that among uh, the Jews, there was this expectation that when the Messiah came, in the time period following his arrival, there would be a certain amount of suffering from both of the Messiah and his people, that it would bring about a season of woe. It would bring about a season of affliction for both the Messiah and his people. So maybe Paul is saying, I am filling up what is lacking by completing the rest of that category, right? The objective sacrifice of Christ on the cross is sufficient for salvation, but there's more affliction to come because God has warned us that this is coming for his people. I think that's defensible, and I think it makes a ton of sense. Um, but I think there's another way that makes just slightly more sense if I uh, have to pick one. And that's the second one here. And we could, we could think of this as, as sort of presentation or extension. What is Paul talking about when he says that something is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? I think what is lacking is a personal display that would make Christ's afflictions known among the nations. And so I think there's this idea that our suffering can help others see and feel the suffering of Christ. It's not that the suffering of Christ is objectively any less powerful. It's that subjectively they can feel it. They can see it. They can experience it more when they watch the people of Christ suffer for his name. It doesn't qualitatively change the afflictions of Christ. Those are sufficient for salvation, but it presents it to them. It extends it to them that they might recognize it. I think uh, you ground this in uh, things like Philippians 2.30, where Paul's talking about the ministry of this guy Epaphroditus, and he says that Epaphroditus, it's the same phrase, he risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He says that to the Philippians. And the idea there is not that the Philippians weren't previously helping Paul, it's that what was lacking was this personal representation. Epaphroditus made it real to Paul that the Philippians really did care for him because he nearly uh, lost his life uh, for the sake of Paul. Either way, whether you kind of think of it as this sort of messianic category of afflictions or you think of it as this kind of personal presentation of the suffering of Christ, either way it comes down to this, that Christians are called to share in the sufferings of Jesus. That's Philippians 3.10. And that these costs, coming back to Colossians here, are for the sake of the church. And they are in order to make the word of God fully known. So what does all this mean? I think it comes down to this. God will often supplement the proclamation of his word with the suffering of his people. Let me say that again. Chew on it a minute. God will often supplement the proclamation of his word. And we're talking about Paul's ministry and, and how he went forth proclaiming Christ, as he says in verse 29. God will often supplement the proclamation of his word with the suffering of his people in order to make his word fully known. How will the word of Christ get to the nations? It will often go through the suffering of Christ's people. As they show that their lives are less valuable to them than the extension of that gospel to those who do not know. 
i tell you just a brief example. This is a story shared by a guy named J. Oswald Sanders. J. Oswald Sanders uh, is a, a, a missionary. He became kind of a, a speaker and author. Uh, he wrote a bunch of books as an older man at age 70. He wrote his first book when he died at 89. I think he had written like 20 books or something. Uh, pretty remarkable. His name's J. Oswald Sanders. Uh, my favorite joke is to think, uh, you know, if if he goes by Oswald, what in the world does J stand for? Uh, what would you pick Oswald over uh, compared to J? Uh, I don't know what it means, but uh, I just think it's funny. Uh, but he has a book called Spiritual Leadership. He tells a story about this indigenous missionary in India and how this guy was going village to village, walking barefoot to tell people about Jesus. And one night he got into this village he had never been to before. He got there kind of late in the day and he came into the village and he began to proclaim to them the good news of Jesus Christ. And they did not want to hear it. So they, they cast him out of the village. They threatened him and they, they quite literally cast him out and made him leave the village. It was late in the day. And so the man sat down beneath a tree and decided to rest for the evening. And then a few hours later, he woke up, and the chief of the village, along with all of the villagers, were surrounding him. And they said, we came out because we were curious about what kind of man you are. And we got out here, and we saw you sleeping, and the first thing we saw as we came upon you laying on the ground were your blistered feet. And we thought to ourselves, if if you have gone through all of this challenge to get to us, if you have Come to us at great cost to yourself. You must have a very important message to bear. So we'd like for you to wake up and we'd like to hear what you came to say. And Sanders says, this man's beautiful, blistered feet were the means by which God awoke those people to understand that his message was worth hearing. I think that's what Paul's getting at here when he says he's filling up the afflictions of Christ Not that the afflictions of Christ are lacking in some way, but he's personalizing them. He's bringing them to people. And he's inviting us into the same kind of thing where we could, just like that missionary in India, live such a life that people would look upon us and realize if that person is willing to lose it all and risk it all for the sake of this message, it may be something I'd like to hear. It may, in fact, be worth it. So I think that's why Paul is able to rejoice in his sufferings because he believed that God would ultimately use them to make his word fully known. So we've got the recipients, the cost, now we turn to the message. We think about uh, the way he talks about making the word of God known. And then in the middle of the passage there in 26 and 27, uh, even into 28, he uses this language of mystery. Uh, This is kind of different in the Bible than we use it today. Uh, We use mystery like uh, something that, is, that kind of needs to be solved, uh, sort of a, a secret uh, hidden that we have to kind of work out the details, like solving a riddle. In the, in the Bible, uh, the word mystery is not so much a puzzle, it's more of a plan. It's this idea, the language is picked up in the Old Testament, that God has a plan that is somehow hidden that will someday be revealed with the Messiah. So Daniel talks about that, for example. So the, what Paul is saying now is the revelation has come. The plan has been fulfilled, and as one commentator put it, the plan is a person. So in verse 27, he says, The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. So what is the mystery? The mystery is that Christ has come to the nations, not just to the Jews, not just to the people who are waiting for the Messiah, but to the Gentiles in every nation of the world. 
that they might hear about the glory that is Christ coming to dwell among them. So Paul says, him we proclaim, and it reminds us all that our ministry should be about the revelation of this mystery. Our ministry may involve more, but it should never involve less than proclaiming Christ as the hope of all nations. And again, I think that applies to each and every one of us, whatever shape our ministry takes. So some in the church are called to be on the front lines of that, literally going into the nations and and, uh, proclaiming the gospel to people who had never heard it. Others are in the workforce. Uh, we, We sing that song a moment ago that just reminds us that whatever work the Lord puts in your hands, He calls you to do for His glory. It is a stewardship entrusted to you. And part of your ministry as a Christian, part of your responsibility as a steward, is to take the opportunities you have before you and make sure you're using them to extend the name of Christ to all. So how do we do that? We move then from message to means. I'm down in verse 28 here. He says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And going on in verse 29, he says, This I toil, struggling with all his energy, God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. So this is where Paul shifts from the singular to the plural. And again, I think uh, this is grounds for saying that this does not just apply to ministers and missionaries. This is for the church. He talks about the energy of God. The literal translation there would be the energy with which God energizes me. So the implication is if God is working in you, if his spirit is strengthening you each day, then you're entrusted with this kind of stewardship. You have a ministry to fulfill. And that ministry is to proclaim Christ through teaching and warning or proclaiming and admonishing or instructing and correcting. It's kind of two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, there's the positive. This is who God is. This is what we are to do in response to God. Then there's the negative. That's not who God is. That's wrong. That is not how you are to live. And proclaiming Christ involves all, involves both. He says it's with all wisdom, uh, which reminds me of verse 9, where Paul was praying for the Colossians. He prayed that they would be filled with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So here's the important thing for us to see. The prayer to be filled with wisdom will often be answered through the teaching and admonishing of others. So you want to be wise? You pray that God would make you wise? It's often going to come through other people instructing you and correcting you. It means you've got to put yourself in a place where that kind of thing can happen. Now here at Midlands, our primary way that we aim to do that is through our community groups. I hope every week when we gather, you are taught and instructed through the preaching ministry. I hope every week when we gather, you are exhorted and encouraged through the songs that we sing. I hope every time we gather, whether it's here on a Sunday or in some other event, the times before and after the structured time together, I hope we are encouraging one another as we experience fellowship together. But the primary way that we would want to see this kind of ministry happen is in the context of a community group. So I want to connect this to something we talked about last week. 
Last week we looked at how the warnings of Scripture are often a means of grace. That they're a message of grace. That God helps us persevere by these warnings in Scripture that tell us to stop when we're going down the wrong road and tell us to press on when we're doing the right kinds of things. Sometimes, the point I want to make today is that sometimes those warnings will come to you through the words of a trusted friend. Right? And we actually see that in Scripture. This is Hebrews 3.12 we read last week. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. And then that's where we stopped last week. This is verse 13. But exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So how is it that we take care to keep our hearts believing, to make sure we don't turn away from the living God to some false gospel? We surround ourselves with people that are going to say, keep going, press on. Don't do that. It's destroying you. People that are willing to teach you and admonish you. I was thinking this week about how many times I've sat across from somebody whose life is in absolute devastation as we try to unpack it and we try to pick up the pieces. There's one thing that's been in every single situation I've personally been involved in. Isolation. Who was with you before you got here? It's always no one. Always. You pull yourself away from the kind of community that gives life to your soul and months later, you're sitting across the table from a pastor or a friend, and you're saying, I don't know if there's any hope. I think I've gone too far. I don't, I don't know what's next for us. I don't know where it goes from here. So how do you protect your heart from unbelief? How do you grow in wisdom? You surround yourself with wise people who love you enough to teach you and admonish you. We love you enough to encourage you and exhort you to continue trusting in Christ. So you have to ask yourself the question in trying to apply this passage in your life. Do I have people in my life today that would run out in front of me and pull me from the street before I walk unknowingly before an oncoming car to connect with the illustration from last week? And if you don't, know that here at Midlands, our primary way that we would hope you would experience that is through a community group. So Get connected in one today. You can talk to a lot of us, Ian in particular, be happy to help bridge that gap this morning. But another question you might ask yourself, reminding us that this is a responsibility uh, entrusted to us all, is does anyone actually trust me enough to listen to me if I began teaching and exhorting? We all need people. They're going to teach and warn us proclaim Christ to us, but we also need to be the kind of people that are going to teach and warn others. And it's a bit of a character check to ask yourself, would anyone listen if I started doing that? Would anyone care what I have to say? Does my life set the kind of example that others would want to follow? So we've examined the recipients, the costs, the message, the means, and then lastly, uh, we want to talk a little bit about the purpose. What's behind what Paul is after here? He says it in verse 28 this way. Uh, We're warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the end goal of Paul's ministry. It should remind us 
of verse 22 we looked at last week. The end goal of Christ's suffering on the cross is that he might present us, the church, holy and blameless and above reproach. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, that's what Christ died for. That's what I want my life to count for. He died to make his church holy and blameless, to present his bride above reproach to himself. I want to spend my life presenting people mature in Christ, doing whatever it takes to get to that. And and I think that's why he's able to rejoice in his sufferings. That to me is the most puzzling thing about the whole passage. This crazy guy says he's rejoicing in his sufferings. He's sitting in a prison while he's pinning these words. He says, I'm glad, I'm thankful, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings because my sufferings are accomplishing, in part, they're accomplishing the plan of God for his people. They're helping prepare the church for Jesus. And for that reason, I am glad and able to rejoice. So I ask you, what would happen if you situated your suffering today in the cosmic plan of God? And if you thought of your pains and your struggles as if they were given to you for the sake of others, as if the suffering you're enduring would in fact be a part of how God is extending the gospel of Christ to the nations and how he is preparing his church to be mature and holy and blameless on the day when he returns for us all. How would it impact the decisions you make? How would you calculate risk? What sort of things would you be willing to let go of? Would you risk your comforts? Would you risk your security? Would you risk your reputation? Would you perhaps even risk your life for the sake of Christ, for His people all around the world? Would you count it worthy of that small offering? Before, I answer, before you answer, I'd like to just share a, a quick little story. Um, as far as I remember, I, I don't think I've ever shared this in a corporate setting before. I, I had to ask Shy. I had to make sure I had told Shy uh, before I got up here today and talked to her about it yesterday. Uh, the first time I ever heard a sermon on this passage that I recall uh, was in January 2006. Uh, it was at uh, the same Passion Conference I referenced this a few months ago. Uh, John, John Piper, he preached two sermons. I think I quoted the, the other one about three months ago. This was the next day. Um, and he preached on this passage, and he set forth this vision for spending our life for the glory of God. And he, and he ended with a question, are you willing to risk at all? Are you willing to suffer if it leads to others coming to know Christ? And I was moved by what he said. I was, I was struck to the heart by that call. And I remember sitting down uh, at the end of the sermon. I remember praying. And I remember saying quite literally, Lord, whatever it takes, I want my life to count for your glory among the nations, your plan for the ages, whatever it means for me, whatever I might suffer to that end, Lord, I want my life to mean something. It's January 4th, 2006, Wednesday, January 4th. On Sunday night, my dad called. I mean, you guys know the rest of this story. He said, your mom has been sick for a few days, and we're taking her to the ER. It's the first I'd heard of it. 
I drove across Kentucky to, that night, and I thought of that prayer. And then uh, the next day, uh, a doctor told us that she had leukemia, and I thought of that prayer. I thought, ah, this is what I prayed for, in part. Uh, a few months later, when the doctor told us that there was nothing more they could do, I thought of that prayer. I thought, Lord, I said, whatever it takes, whatever I might suffer, Lord, I, I want my life to count. If this is it, I want it. I want to embrace it. This is hard. I want to embrace it. And, and I thought of it, you know, the week of Mother's Day that year uh, at her funeral uh, after she died and she went to be with the Lord and we're just trying to process through all this and make sense of it. I thought of that prayer and I thought, Lord, this is what I, this is what I ask for. And I want to be clear, I, I, don't, I don't think the Lord answered my prayer by, by giving my mom cancer. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, if I can be honest with you, I've I've wrestled with that. I've thought that. I've wondered that. Uh, but I think what was going on there, I don't think that's actually how God works and things like that. Uh, I don't think uh, his plan for my mom's life changed that day because of the prayer I prayed. I think what changed was my heart and my readiness for the plan that he was about to unveil. And it was in his grace that I heard a call that day to Embrace suffering for the sake of others. And I don't pretend to have done that well. Uh, I've slipped and fallen many times along the way. Uh, but as I look back on that moment, as I read through this text, I, I just I, I think about some of the things that I thought about that morning and, and all the other times I've thought of that prayer in the 12 years since it happened. And I, I, I just think I believe it as much today as I did then. I'd pray it again. I mean it today. I want my life to count for the sake of Christ. I want our church to count. I want us to do something that changes the world around us. If it means we suffer, that's not the way I'd like to do it. (laughs) I can think of lots of easy paths to that. But that's rarely how God works. It's rare. And so I want us to be a people that would embrace suffering, not go after it irresponsibly, not, not be foolish or careless or reckless, but that we would rejoice in our sufferings and we would recognize that the son who gave his life for the sake of his people in order to someday present us holy and blameless before himself also looks at each one of us and says, if you will follow me, Take up your cross. And so I want to pray that God would make us ready for that moment when those moments come. Some of you right now are suffering, and I pray that this is helpful to you to help you sort out maybe some of what the Lord is doing and some of the purpose it might have in your own life and particularly in the lives of other people as He refines you and changes you and shapes you for the ministry He has prepared for you. And undoubtedly, all of us will have moments uh, where, where we are hurting. And I pray when those moments come, we will be able to rejoice with Paul. We'd be able to recognize that suffering, even that suffering, as part of the stewardship. This is part of what God has given to me, and I want to handle it responsibly. So we're going we're to take communion now. It reminds us that whatever we may suffer in this life, it will always fall short of the suffering of Christ. 
we are on the other side of the cross as we talk about these things. His suffering was sufficient for our salvation. We are not filling up what is lacking in him or his sacrifice. We are taking that sacrifice that we simulate in this meal and we're extending it to others as we go into the world, risking whatever it may cost us that others might know the glory of Christ. So if you're with us this morning and you're a believer, uh, we're going to sing in a moment after I pray and we'd love for you to take communion with us and enjoy that time of fellowship. Uh, If you're not a Christian, if you're here today and and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, uh, we'd actually ask you to sit this out and to stay in your seat for this time. Um, I would invite you to reflect on some of these things. Uh, Perhaps you might ask yourself, is there anything in my life that I'm willing to risk all for? I mean, I think that's the question those Indian villagers were asking when they came upon that man asleep outside their village and they saw his blistered feet. Is there anything I would do this for? It scared them and they said, we want to know what he has to say. So uh, if that's where you're at, we would love to share more with you today. And I'll be in the back if you'd like to talk more about that. But let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll close with communion. Thank you for the message of the cross. Thank you for the mystery that was hidden for ages, but has now been revealed to us. We get to glory in, we get to sing about, we get to rejoice in, and we get to live uh, in light of. So Lord, with that great Uh, blessing with that great unveiling comes a great stewardship and we pray that we would embrace it with joy whatever it might entail for us help us to be willing to spend our lives for the sake of others be it our children uh, be it the people in the community around us be it our colleagues at work be it our friends and our family be it the peoples of the nations that have never heard the name of Jesus Lord let us be a people who are willing to risk it all for your sake and theirs, that you might have the glory you deserve. Pray these things in Christ's name.